All right, we'll go ahead and uh, open with prayer, and, uh, and then we'll get started. Gracious Father, we do thank you uh, for the opportunity, the privilege to get to gather one day in seven to behold our God and to behold the Holy One of Israel. We thank you for this study in Isaiah, and we pray, Father, that as we embark upon it, that the great majesty of the book would be written well on our hearts and on our minds. Help us to see Christ in all of its pages. And help us to see our great and sovereign God who will finish that which he has started and will bring us in to the new heavens and the new earth. For it's in Christ's name that we pray and believe. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm glad to see that you all made it here in the snow. Uh, It was a little dicey earlier this morning. I'm glad it's gotten a little bit better. Uh, There is no handout uh, for today, and um, I did receive no small amount of complaints about the handout last week, Um, and that was rightly so. I just was trying to give you something to write something on, not necessarily to be able to see the slides. I know that it was kind of problematic. I will try to actually put together kind of a summation of both uh, introductions Uh, and have that available for you probably next week or the week um, thereafter. Uh, Today, the reason why there's really no handout uh, is because more it's a story that I want you to hear and just kind of listen and absorb, and uh, hopefully um, that will help uh, in kind of digesting uh, the book of uh, Isaiah uh, as we uh, go through it. All right, well, just a little bit of review. Isaiah, uh, the prophet, we don't know a lot about him, but uh, his name meant Yahweh is salvation. He was the son of Amos, um, who possibly could have been the brother of King Amaziah, which is why he would have had access uh, to the royal court. Uh, His hometown was Jerusalem, and he was married to a prophetess, um, and we talked about prophets, and uh, prophetesses would fall into that category. Now, whether or not she um, gave her own um, prophecy that were given to her from God, or whether she was a prophetess in the sense that she bore the sons to Isaiah, whom God used as a picture, She'er uh, Jahub and Maharshalah Hashbaz, um, whose names had significance. Um, We don't really know uh, what role of a prophetess she uh, had. And then I I told you that it is um, thought that under King Manasseh uh, that Isaiah um, was martyred by being sawn in half. uh, And Hebrews 11 gives us a clue to that. These are just uh, some review slides from last week. I'm not going to go over all this stuff. This slide, really, what I want you to recall is just the scope of Isaiah's ministry. It lasted decades, lasted decades from 740 to 681. And mainly, he is talking to the southern tribe, or Judah. Um, And we're going to talk more about the tribes uh, being split or the kingdom being split, but mainly his focus of ministry is to Judah. So 740 to 681, that's a pretty significant um, uh, time of, of ministry. Now, 
his prophecy, that not the time of him giving the prophecy, but the timeline of the actual prophecies um, are not just for this time period, but for the exiles in Babylon um, all the way out till the new heavens and the new earth. And so it's a, it's a really long uh, scope in view. <clears throat> well, hopefully you got a chance um, over the past week to just kind of thumb through the book of Isaiah. And if you haven't, I would encourage you to do that um, this week. Um, it it's, can be hard sometimes when you have a really big book to get a grasp on what is uh, occurring here. And um, if you think of 36 through 39 as a hinge, and you have kind of these uh, two um, doors or flaps or whatever you want to call them on either side of the hinge, uh, that's really what's taking place. So if you look at 1 through 35, really it's Assyria and the threat of Assyria that is in view here. And um, 36 through 39, it switches from a uh, poetic prose to a narrative, and you get the story of King Hezekiah and uh, the from uh, King Sennacherib um, of Assyria, and that defeat that occurs for Assyria. And then you get this big-time foreshadowing that occurs when Hezekiah then welcomes the uh, Babylonian envoy. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a foreshadowing that they will then be taken away into exile uh, into Babylon. And so from 40 to 55, the prophecy is really for the exiles in Babylon. And then in 56 through 66, it's kind of the culmination uh, of the new heavens and the new earth. And so something that's kind of neat to see here throughout the book of Isaiah, as you're reading, you'll see that Jerusalem is often referred to as Mount Zion, right? Or Zion. And as you go through the book, you'll find that Mount Zion refers more and more to our heavenly Zion, the new city Zion, um, and less so to the physical Jerusalem of that date and time. Um, And so there's a shifting, there's kind of a growing uh, culmination towards the new heavens and the new earth. Any questions uh, on, on this part right here? Another couple of key chapters... Uh, that you're going to want to focus on is chapter 6. Chapter 6, everybody knows Isaiah chapter 6 from R.C. Sproul. Um, It's the the Holy One of Israel. Um, I saw the Holy One high and lifted up, which is another recurring phrase that Isaiah uh, uses. But uh, chapter 6 is really uh, foundational in its position, the way it was put. It's not all the way at the beginning at chapter 1, nor is it just somewhere in between, but it's really kind of at the beginning of this section uh, of um, uh, this Assyrian threat. And also then chapter 40 is a really key chapter, which then is for uh, the, the second section. 
So chapter 6 and chapter 40 are, um, are kind of key in their place and their position. Keep this here, uh, you know, or keep this somewhere where you can refer back to it as you're, um, as you're reading through. Phil and then Gary. Could you say the first part? I couldn't quite hear you. Oh, oh, you're talking about Jehar Jehu, right? Or Mehar Shalal Hashbaz, quick to plunder, swift to spoil. Yeah. That judgment will certainly come. Correct. Yeah. Is, somebody asked me a question about that. I'm, I'm just going to take a quick second here. Somebody asked me a question about the fulfillment of prophecy and the confusion about, remember I talked about last week, Isaiah going and getting what he said, basically notarized, logged into the royal archives, and then coming back. And the whole point of that was to prove that what he was saying was from God and was going to come true. And so it would be as if you could say, I'm, not, I'm going to tell you who's going to be in the 2024 election, who's going to win it, buy how much, here, notarize it, we're going to file it away after the election, pull it out, and I'll show you that I'm right. That, that's basically what Isaiah was doing there. Yeah, Gary. So, biblical prophets are often known for the spectacular predictive prophecy or foretelling, but actually the majority of the work that Isaiah receives by divine inspiration is really foretelling, right? As you say, it's for the immediate context, the immediate people are driving benefit from this rather than all of it oriented towards the future. Yeah, we, we um, that's exactly right, and we hit on that a little bit last week, that uh, prophets... Um, had insight into current day events, uh, but they were also delivering warning for current day peoples, but then also giving uh, hope and uh, foretelling. So, yeah, great, uh, great refresher there. Oh, yeah. It's, you mentioned chapter six. Chapters one to five, do they, do, do they come after chapter six and Yeah, that's a great question. We'll get to that uh, again. So I will come back to this in a little bit more detail. But um, remember to think of Isaiah as a series of sermons and that his disciples probably um, put it in some final uh, form. So while we definitely would hold that Isaiah wrote all of Isaiah, um, how it occurs in chronology is probably an edited form. No less inspired, but just uh, put it 
put out. And that's something that's a little unique about Isaiah because Jeremiah and Ezekiel start off with their call. And then that's the beginning where Isaiah, it's, you don't get until chapter 6. But I think it's really helpful um, because as you read through this, and I think as you go, as you, um, uh, as we kind of get into it, you're going to see that right at the beginning of chapter 1, it's giving a state of the union, so to speak. Uh, a state of Israel at that time. And uh, the, the immense uncertainty, the immense displeasure that God has towards them as a nation. And their gross violation of uh, his commands and uh, violating his holy covenant with them. And so, um, I mean, chapter 1 is damning, you know, all the way. And yet in chapter 2, you already get that hope of uh, that one day it will all be made right. And, and so I, th- I think that it is really brilliant how uh, it, it was put together to kind of, you're, you're, you're just thrown right into it. And then chapter 6 kind of backs up and shows you how Isaiah came to that place. That's right. He's always in the work of drawing his people to himself, and he doesn't abandon them whole, wholeheartedly, but um, brings that remnant. So um, why study the book? It's an amazing book, and I'm not going to uh, go through each of these, but Romans of the Old Testament, just a, a, a theologically amazing book, uh, quoted 66 times in the New Testament, and Gary gave me right before class here, it is pr- used as proof text in 40 of the 66 chapters of the Confession. Um, so uh, it's just a theologic giant in the Old Testament. Um, the New Testament climaxes with the promises originally given in Isaiah, uh, which I, I think is really neat. We get the word gospel, we talked about that last week, and it bears witness to Christ. Um, and we looked at these uh, passages uh, last week. All right, so just to review some goals, uh, if you weren't here, first of all, I want you to read the book of Isaiah. I, mean, it's, uh, uh, I know it's an intimidating book, but hopefully as we kind of go through it together, we can break it up and uh, you're reading the book of Isaiah. This isn't intended to be an exhaustive study, um, and uh, so... Please don't expect it to be such, but I want you to get an understanding of the basic structure, the outline, the geopolitical context, and identify major themes. And today, it's going to be getting that basic understanding of the geopolitical context and the major themes of the book. Okay, now I know that you can't read all these words. I've tried enlarging the font tried enlarging the map, but if you're sitting in the back, it can be a little bit, so it rewards those who get here early and sit in the front. Um, But you you don't have to really see the details of the map here, okay? Uh, Basically, what I wanted you to get was kind of get this zoomed out map of the Middle East, and to give you a little bit of perspective about what we're talking about here. So here's the Mediterranean Sea, here's Greece. This is Turkey, Assyria, and remember that Israel is small 
in comparison to everything that's going on around it. Okay, this is, uh, this is current day. All right, this is current day. And we're going to be talking about the Assyrian Empire, which was a massive empire. And historians often consider the Assyrian Empire to be the first empire of uh, many empires that followed. And um, there's some reasons for that. But just to suffice it to say that um, the Assyrians uh, was a large empire. Quickly, because we've got to keep going. Uh-huh. All right. Let me start back kind of with a little bit of a history of, uh, the, of Israel and uh, the kings. So um, you remember that uh, Samuel is prophet, right? And the people say, we want a king to be like the other nations, right? And so uh, who is the first king of Israel? Saul, right? Uh, Saul uh, does not follow uh, God in all of his ways, and so God rejects him, and he raises up King David. Now, I think a, uh, a, a, an aspect of King David that we sometimes forget, though we read it, is that when King David started his reign, was it over the entire uh, nation of Israel? No, it was. It was. There was just a small group, right? Small, small tribe, and um, it took seven years under very, very tenuous circumstances that only God could have brought together. That He is able to unite the kingdom, and so one of greatest, one of the greatest aspects of the Davidic reign is that He unites the kingdom and establishes the nation. Of Israel, okay, and that is uh, that's really important because remember when Joshua brings the tribes into the Promised Land, they're all individual tribes, and then what happens after Joshua? How are they ruled? Judges, Judges right? And we know how that turned out, right? Um, so all this time, God is to be their king, but remember, Samuel says he's, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me, right? And so, but even in that, God providentially uses it to bring about his people. So to kind of give you a little bit, uh, again, of these mental hooks and dates, you don't have to get too carried away with the dates, but just know King David's around 1,000 B.C., okay? 1,000 B.C. And then his son, King Solomon, reigns from around 71 to 31. And this is the height of the glory of Israel, Riches, power, peace, uh, the borders are expanded. Uh, King Solomon is really the, the golden age of Israel. But remember then that Rehoboam, his son, ascends to the throne and he foolishly does not listen to his elder councils and he takes the wisdom, so called, of his peers. And um, what happens is it splits the kingdom. Right? It splits the kingdom. And so we have the northern ten tribes and 
we have the southern two tribes, and I'm missing them. Here we go. All right, so this is uh, a little bit here. This is a zoomed in of Israel, the the 12 uh, tribes. But now you have just Judah, and you've got the northern tribes. Okay? So they come into the kings, and how many good kings were there in the northern tribes? None. None, right? They all did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They all did evil. And in Judah, it's a mixed bag. You have some that did what was right and followed after the ways of King David, their father, and they had others that were evil. And so we come to King Uzziah, and now we're getting into the time when Isaiah would have been probably born um, under King Uzziah's reign when he came um, when when he was born, uh, and Uzziah's reign lasted fifty years. And he was generally a good king. And um, he, he really had a time of peace and prosperity. And there's some, we're going to talk about that. But it was really under King Uzziah that uh, Israel collected riches, or Judah co- collected riches. They, were, um, uh, they, they enjoyed peace and prosperity under his reign. Uh, for probably about 45 of the 50 years of, of his reign. Um, now, this was part and parcel. I'm going to come back to this slide. But um, part and parcel because Assyria, who is the main threat, is preoccupied. And um, during this time, look at the darker green. And, and um, Assyria, as... Um, a city-state started around uh, the 21st century, and it became kind of an empire around the uh, 13th century BC. And they're they're focused at this time, even um, the 700s. They're focused more on their neighbors to the north, which was a kingdom called Urartu. And there's some entry if you if you like archaeology. There's some interesting things there. Um, the Hittite kingdom is over here where the Phrygian kingdom is. Babylon is actually under Assyrian rule at this time. They're, they're not even, they're a blip on the map, okay? And so you're going to see how fast things change here in a very short time, time span. But because it's concentrated north, and because the Egyptian power had basically really recessed at this time, there's really no threat against Israel. And Israel, remember, is a um, tiny nation in that peninsula. Um, uh, and so they had weak and distracted neighbors. They were also that land bridge between the north and the south, and also from the Mediterranean Sea to the east. And so what this did is it made them a huge trade stop. Okay, and this is what helped to bring in uh, riches. But as their wealth grew, as so often happens with countries, you had, instead of a, a middle class, you had a great divide between the upper class and the lower class. And Isaiah confronts them about how the rich do not care for the poor and how they are buying their justice to get what they want. 
So they're using money for their own means. And so this is why this is, has happened. This is how the prosperity uh, had occurred. And their worship becomes very hollow um, without, uh, without meaning or significance. Okay, so I told you that Assyria was um, a city-state, um, and then it became a territorial state, and then by the time we get to the 1300s, it becomes uh, an empire. Now, one of the things that Assyria had going for them that really made them uh, an empire is that they were the first... Um, they were the first ones to really centralize their government. And so they ruled other areas, but they did so with policies and procedures. And so they would have um, basically governors that were ruling these distant lands, but were still doing it under the same policies and procedures as set by the, the king in the central location. And the reason why they were very successful at their conquest is that they would go into a country and they would uh, conquer it and then guess what they would do with their people? They would exile them out of that country and they would resettle them somewhere else in the empire and they would take people from another conquered place and they would bring them and settle them in that area. Now, why do you think they would do that? It would be disoriented. Okay, so be disorienting. Control. You lose your connection with your homeland, right? So, um, you know, I, probably all of us are fairly patriotic to our uh, country of America, but if I took you and transplanted you and put you in Uruguay, would you fight as hard for Uruguay? Um, so the point is, is that it was, it was for all those reasons, disorienting, it dis caused a disconnection. And this is how, if you fast forward a little bit, northern tribes are exiled. Uh, Assyria brings in a people to the tribes are. This is how we got the Samaritans. Okay? So it was a mix. That's how you get the Samaritans later when we uh, encountered them in the New Testament. Right. Well, wasn't, wasn't Israel under Solomon at least maybe David even? Sure, there was there was centralized, but they didn't expand it out. They they they're, they're, they didn't have a policy or a um, foreign policy of conquer and subject. So they were over there. You're right that they had good government over their their area, but their goal wasn't to expand and. Um, subject. Yeah. This is Nineveh, right? Yeah, so Nineveh is the, the central hub, which, um, remember, Jonah goes to, right? And one of the reasons why he's hesitant to go is because he knows that they're going to be the ones that come and wipe them out. And so he's, uh, he's hesitant to do that. Yeah, Harrison. Right. So, so there's a time scale of, okay, it 
the timeline on building uh, administrative government uh, has, has a much longer lead in Assyria by several hundred years uh, and possibly a thousand. Right. That's right, yeah. It, it, it's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around how long Assyria had been around. Um, you know, I mean, we think, you know, we're a young country at 200. You know, they were around several hundred years. Um, so, interesting. Right. Right. Right, right. I'm going to keep moving because uh, I will not get done here. And if we have time for questions, we'll uh, do it. So um, by the time we get to uh, 745, so five years before King Uzziah's death, okay? And remember that chapter 6 in Isaiah starts off with in the year that King Uzziah died, right? So that's around 740. 741. So around 745, a guy by the name of Tiglath-Pileser III ascends the throne in Assyria. You don't have to get too carried away with these names, though they're kind of cool and sound like they're from Lord of the Rings. Um, But uh, he ascends the throne, and he is an amazing uh, leader. And he basically controls the border to the north, he takes care of Babylon, which was a little uprising, and he says, we're, we're going to go out and expand. And so he expands and comes down, and he's putting pressure on the northern tribes okay, of Israel. And so these two smaller states, what do you do if you have one big bully? You make allies, right? And so the idea that the northern king, King Pekah, had was, hey, I'm going to make an alliance with Damascus, uh, which was King Rezin, and we're going to join together. And they wanted Ahaz, who was the king of the southern tribe, to join with them so that they had some sort of coalition to go against Assyria. And uh, they, they knew that Assyria was growing powerful. And so they come to King Ahaz, and Ahaz is like, uh, I'm not so sure about this. And so they actually invade um, uh, Judah to try to force his hand. But what does King Ahaz do? This is where you get to chapter 7, by the way, in Isaiah. He does not trust in the Lord, but rather he puts his trust in a man. And who does he go to? He goes to Tiglath-Pileser. And so he basically makes an alliance saying, I know you're going to defeat me. I'm going to go ahead and subject myself to you and bring tribute to you. So he enters into a covenant alliance with Assyria. Now, do you think that pleased God? No. This is a recurring theme that we'll talk about here in Isaiah. Do we trust man or do we trust God? Do we trust man or do we trust God? And this is... This is, again, a a recurring theme. So um, he joins with Tiglath, which saves him in the moment, perhaps, but destines their doom in the future. And so they had to bring 
a lot of tribute every year to uh, the uh, mothership so it drained all the riches of Israel and subjected them basically to uh, impoverishment. So what happens to Damascus and what happens to the northern tribes? They're wiped out. Damascus is, is captured in 732 and the, the northern tribes in 722 and they're exiled and they're taken away and they're never heard from again. Okay, so it was it was uh, very bad. Now Tiglath Pileser dies during this time, and he is um, succeeded by uh, Shemenezer, um, and he comes in and kind of finishes it. his reign is actually fairly short. And a guy by the name of Sargon comes in and is really the one that um, exiles, and he was uh, really uh, a really a harsh uh, harsh leader. So this is uh, a little bit of how you see the exile uh, taking place uh, into um, Assyria. By the time you get to chapters 36 through 39 in Isaiah, King Hezekiah is now on the throne. And Hezekiah reverses all the policies of Ahaz and basically says, no, we're going to follow the Lord. And so he sets up and gets ready for an imminent siege by Assyria, just knowing that they're going to come, right? But he suspects that, um, that they're a little bit weakened. Um, he underestimated their weakness at that time. But in the meantime, remember that it's Hezekiah that builds the waterway, the tunnel, um, for Jerusalem so that they would have water in case of a siege. He builds up the military. He builds up the fortresses. And it's at that time that he withholds tribute to Assyria. When I say he underestimated, it's, uh, it's then that Sennacherib descends on him with full force. And that's where you get the, um, uh, the story or the narrative in Isaiah 36 and 37. But God delivers them. Uh, God delivers them. So... All of that to say, not to give you a, a history lesson per se, but just imagine living during that time. Imagine the change, the confusion. It's dangerous. You don't know what to expect. And you're this little country sitting there. And I do think that it is easy for us to kind of sit and throw stones at Ahaz and the kings of Judah and say, oh, you guys should have had faith. But if you have a huge country with a huge military bearing down on your country, are you going to trust the prophet that's saying, you just need to trust God? Or are you going to look for more tangible means of trust in forming alliances with Egypt or with Assyria themselves? Now, we know what we should do, but what do we often do in our own lives? Right? And so... Um, these are uh, some important things. Well, as you read through Isaiah, I want you to get some, pay, pay attention to some recurring themes here. First, first of all, God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is throughout this. He is the maker of nations. He uses the nations for his purposes. He brings about discipline and judgment, and he builds up and he restores. He is the one that is ultimately uh, sovereign and in control. At Presbytery, uh, 
uh, last time there was a candidate that underwent question, you know, his ordination exam, and uh, they asked him a question about uh, where in the Bible would you show somebody um, God's sovereign over bad things or evil things, and um, a classic text that you would go to would be, you know, Joseph and his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Uh, another great text is um, Isaiah and, and showing how uh, God is sovereign over all uh, the nations and uh, how he uses it for his purposes. I'm going to save my next comment just for a little bit. So we talked about, the theme is, do we trust in God or do we trust in man? Ahaz fails in chapter 7. When you come to chapter 7 and Isaiah is, is telling him to, to trust in God, ask God for a sign, he will you know, deliver. Ahaz fails. Hezekiah comes along and he succeeds with, with uh, Assyria, but we see him then failing because he starts to get friendly with Babylon, who is a never mind at that time. It would be like us having an alliance with Canada and thinking, oh, it's Canada. Sorry if there's any Canadians in here. <laughs> right? But then 100 years down the road, Canada is the China. Right? So um, that, that's kind of the way Babylon was at that time. And Isaiah rebukes Hezekiah and says, why did you uh, talk to them and show them everything? Uh, so it, it's better to trust in God, not man. Of judgment and hope, or destruction and reconstruction, or discipline and restoration, whichever way you kind of want to say it. Um, but as we read through Isaiah, it can be a little bit um, defeating just to feel all the judgment that takes place, especially in the first half of the book. And I, I hope you can muscle through that and not get too discouraged. But look, even in the midst of judgment, look for the glimmers of hope that God gives through Isaiah. Um, look at what he, he does. There's, even though Israel is cut down to the stump, there's a branch. Right? There's a branch. And so um, there is always uh, hope there. And then Isaiah puts in uh, these messianic prophecies, and it's kind of a little easier for us looking backwards to see these messianic prophecies, but these are also part of the hope. This isn't Israel's Messiah. This is the Lord's Messiah. This is the one that God has chosen to be the Savior of uh, the people. And uh, so in chapter 7, we get that in chapter 12, we get that. Um, and then later on, you know, when we see the servant, um, we, we get that. Uh, so it is the, the Lord's Messiah. And really, the reconstruction or this movement towards the new heavens and the new earth, the fulcrum is the Lord's Messiah. That, this reconstruction doesn't take place without God providing the Lord's Messiah. Which, yeah. Isn't that a far bigger uh, uh, evidence of God's 
Sure. Yeah. To me, that's far more evidential from God's sovereignty perspective than anything else. And I mean, it's best proved actually good. Yeah. Yep. Agree. Another thing that you're going to see is the Holy One of Israel. It's a repeated thing. In chapter 1, it's right there. It starts off. We see him again in chapter 6. And the idea is that the Holy One of Israel is the true one on the throne. Right? He's the true one on the throne. It also begs the question, as you're reading it, if the Holy One of Israel is holy, or since the Holy One of Israel is holy, then how can he forgive the sins of the people and still be holy? That's a question we all have to wrestle with because we often underestimate God's holiness and we overestimate our own good and worth and underestimate our sin. And so we're going to touch base on this more when we get to chapter 6. But how is it that God can remain holy and yet still forgive our sin? He is sovereign, and we'll talk, we'll talk more about that. We'll talk more about that. But he can't, do anything that he, he can't do anything that he wants and still be true to himself. So he can't say, Greg, don't, don't worry about that sin. Just forget about it. Because then he would no longer be just. Right? So it's important that he's both just and righteous. And so without trying to give away too much of my thunder, he has to provide the atonement. And so that's what we see in, in, in Isaiah 6, right? Isaiah falls apart because he recognizes that he is a sinful person and he's in the presence of a holy God and there's nothing he can do. But God provides that atonement for him. Same with us. There's nothing we can do but because he is sovereign, he provides that atonement. He doesn't just excuse it, right? But he provides that atonement in the Messiah. Yeah. And then it is a blessing to the nations. And this is one of the greatest themes in Isaiah, is that it's a, it's a blessing to the nations. It, if you want to look at the sovereignty of God. He even uses the scattering of his people to prepare the way for the Messiah many years later. One commentator made note of the fact that it is by the fact that Israelites are scattered to nations, right? And they're a monotheistic people, right? And so when the disciples are and they're preaching a monotheistic religion, well, people had heard of that. Right? They had heard of that. And I think it's interesting, we'll just conclude here, if you turn over to Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66.
verse 18. We'll start there. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from then, them, I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud. And it goes on. Uh, and they shall declare my glory among nations. Now, it's a little debated, so I don't want to make too much of this. But who was from Tarshish or Tarsus? Paul. Paul. Now, it's a, it is debated about whether they're the same. But, isn't it neat that God says, I'm going to send people into all, and what is Paul known for? He's known for going into the Gentile nations and declaring. And so you're going to see this theme of God using Israel in spite of them forsaking what they were supposed to do to bring blessing to the nations. But he uses them anyways. And he scatters them out and he brings the people in. All right. Quick question. They're a weekend. So remember that uh, David and um, Solomon, by the time we get to Solomon, the Philistines are much less a concern. But under the judges under, um, and under King David's rule, the Philistines are really the threat um, uh, to Israel. But by the time we get to King Uzziah, um, and they're, they're a much smaller, uh, much smaller threat. And in fact... Um, I, I can't remember if it's Ahaz or Hezekiah, one of them, but they basically just they put the Philistines in their place um, to fall in line. So it wasn't much of a threat. Just a quick comment. Uh, that's secular, nothing biblical about it. But as you talk about Assyria, I thought of the great United States of America and the phases we have been going through. Mm. Yeah. Some lessons to learn from history. All right. Mr. Raybon, would you please close us in prayer? Father, thank you.